0: How's everybody doing tonight? Do me a favor, turn to Mark chapter 9. We'll be starting in verse 14 tonight. Uh, I've asked some guys to hand out some maps. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a background here and put some photos I took in Israel to good use before we uh, dig into the actual text. So just in case you don't have a map in the back of your Bible or just so that we're all looking at the same one, um, if you'll take one of those. And we're going to try something new tonight. As those are coming through, um, we've been wanting to take a shot at this for a while. So I started to say we're going to take a dry run, but actually this is a live run. So I, I don't know what you would call that. But um, during the teaching tonight, if at any point you come up with any sort of question, well, we want to give you guys the opportunity to maybe take some questions, field some Q&A at the end of the time. Um, I'm stupid, so I'm going to give it a shot. Um if you have any questions during the teaching, you can anonymously ask those questions by texting them. Do we have it there? Nine four 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 seven one seven. 4717 If you do not have that, uh, uh, a, a question during that, you can text Sam anything you want after midnight to the same number, and he will receive it at his home. So uh, the number again is 944 944- So just write that off to the side, and if you have a question at some point during it, um, you can text those, we'll screen through them, and the ones that we like will answer. (laughs) Just being honest, just being honest. So Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Hey, can I have one of those maps? I didn't even keep one for myself. Do we have some extras? We ran short. Oh, is anybody partnered up? Well, you need one. Let me, you guys can share one. You got one. I I don't know whose I took. I'll give it right back. All right. Lillian, you're going to look on with me while we do this, okay? Alright, so here's where we're at. We've been going through Mark chapter 9 lately, that's where we've been before, but I want to give you guys an idea of kind of the layout of what Jesus has been doing. We're following Jesus' ministry as he makes his way through Galilee at present time. You may remember a few weeks ago, we looked at Tyre and Sidon, and he was in these Phoenician areas. That's a good place to look for, to be able to start out as we're kind of tracking him. Tyre is on the northern coast, so way up about right here, you'll see a city by the name of Tyre, right on the coast There, everybody see that on your maps? Okay, from here, we're following Jesus' path, if you will, as he made his way directly uh, to the east, which on your map here is to the right, in case you don't know how to read maps. Um, You see the area Caesarea Philippi, it's also called Panias, everybody see that? You guys remember when Sam taught us about Caesarea Philippi, the area where uh, the gates of hell will not stand against it, it's a temple dedicated to the God who, anyone remember? Pan. That's right. That's why it's referred to as Panias in non, if you will, non-Christian uh, maps, if you will. Um, here we have a photo. Uh, I don't remember if Sam used them. Did you use slides? All right. So here, this is the area right here. That big cave right there is where the actual gates of hell, if you will, were there in of Philippi. Now, from Caesarea Philippi, Jesus made his way a little bit north, most likely, this is kind of with a little bit of parentheses, we don't know for certain this was the mountain that he was on, but it seems to make a lot of uh, geographical and biblical sense that Jesus would have gone from there next to, uh, it's referred to as Mount Hermon. Can we put that picture of Mount Hermon up? Oh, I'm sorry, that's John Hermon. I'm sorry. (laughs) Big, big misunderstanding. In the wintertime, though, their tops look very similar. Okay, so... uh, Is John even here tonight? Man, I wasted that. He's not even here. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, that's John Herman. Let's go to Mount Herman, can we? Here we go. So now, here's what I want you guys to see. On the map, it looks like, you're looking on with me here, Lily? Um, See, right here, well, you know this because you're with me in Israel. You don't need this. Okay, so um, right here, you see Caesarea Philippi, and then you go north, and right above it, it says Mount Herman. You guys, everybody see that on the maps right there? Now look, this is what I want you guys to understand. This is a really small area. Go back to, no, go back. Go back. Okay, see this? Does this gonna show up? It's not. Is it gonna show up on there? This area right here, you can see there's like a little kind of built out area right there. That's really just a parking lot and a trail that right there, that's Caesarea Philippi. That's the cave that I just showed you. Okay, that's this area right here. And Mount Hermon, is that one right there. Okay, so Mount Hermon sits right above Caesarea Philippi. These are very, very close together areas. In fact, in the day that we were there in Israel, we went from Dan, actually we started at um, Caesarea probably, didn't we? We were way over at the coast. We went all the way to Dan, toward that site, went to Caesarea Philippi, toward that site, drove all the way up along Mount Hermon, did what tourists aren't supposed to do, and peeked over the border into Syria, and then drove all the way down the Golan Heights. I mean, it was a long day, all the way back to the Sea of Galilee. So we made a big loop there. These areas are really close together. We did all that in one day, okay? So Mount Hermon is the mountain up above. So when Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, that's generally accepted as most likely the place where Jesus went. There's another picture. You can go now to the next picture. Here's another picture of that mountain range, Mount Hermon being the tallest peak on that. They actually have a ski resort there. So you can ski. That'd be a fun trip to plan to Israel, wouldn't it? Do some snowboarding while we're in Israel. Luggage would be a pain, but that would be fun. All right, so from there, that's where you guys left off with Sam last week, the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, what we're going to be looking at today, if you look at your maps, Jesus and the disciples that are on the mountain with him are making their way back down the mountain after their time away, and they're going to then meet up with the guys at the base of the mountain, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And then he's going to make his way to, if you look on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, everybody see the Sea of Galilee right here kind of in the middle? Everybody see that? On the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's a place called Capernaum. Everybody see that on the map? Now, Capernaum is one of the coolest places you go to in Israel. It's an absolutely amazing site. Can we go to the first picture of Capernaum I think we have here? This is Capernaum. This is what it looks like today. Um, The ruins have been excavated. There is no question about it. This is the biblical city of Capernaum, which was home to who? Anyone know? Peter, this is Peter's home right here. Well, I mean, this is the the area Peter was from. Um, To give you an idea, some of the things that we saw while we were there and things that we've studied so far, you guys see, it doesn't show up so good on here, but see up here this particular large building right here? That's the synagogue that was there in Capernaum. Do you guys remember a specific story that took place in the synagogue in Capernaum? A man with a withered hand, and Jesus found him, and their arms stretched forth, Right there. Now, that's, that's not the full remains of the actual synagogue that was there. That's a rebuild that was built uh, during the, uh, uh, I want to say during the Crusades, I think, or the Byzantine period afterwards. But the foundation there is the synagogue that Jesus would have been to regularly there in Israel. And all of these right here that you see, all this rubble, you can really see it best on this picture if you look real close. Those are all homes very humble fishing town not a wealthy place at all and each one of these little things man it's hard to see we need better screens but they're expensive see this right here like there you go house there you go house you see what we're talking about like little bitty houses that would have these courtyards little one room dwellings very small not fancy at all very humble places but there's one house in that particular town of particular note. In our text tonight, you're going to see where it talks about the fact that, oh, you can go. I think I have some more synagogue pictures. You go to the next, next picture. Um, there's us. Everybody say hi. Hey. There's us in the synagogue there. That was pretty cool. Um, one more picture of the synagogue and some of the columns that are there. Um, now, there's one house in particular. <laughs> Give it away. So, somebody please tell him about this, okay? Just make sure. Anyway, um, so... In, in Capernaum, there's one house in particular that's of huge importance. Go to the next slide, would you? Okay. Now, this is hard to see. You've got this weird steel beam that's right here at the top, which is annoying. It was not there during Jesus' time, in <laughs> case you're wondering. Um, but this inside, you see the four walls right there? This is Peter's house. Now, it is almost certain that this is without question Peter's house. Now, there's a lot of room where some people go, well, how can we know for sure? Well, there's, there's some interesting things that they've discovered about this house that, that lead people to believe that it is the house. This was definitely a house that was known. Even in our text tonight, you're going to see it says when he was in the house. Like there was a house at Capernaum that they always went to. Okay, Jesus had no family, but he was in this area for sure. He he had no home of his own. He had no wife, kids, you know, his own place. He was traveling with the apostles and they stayed. Capernaum was really like his home base. And and there's even signs when you come in. It says the city of Jesus there in Capernaum. And this house in particular, some drastic changes happened to it right about the time that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, archaeologists have done a lot of research, and what they found, and if you look closely in some of the areas, like, uh, again, if you look closely, like, on some of the areas here on the sides, what they discovered is that although every other house in the entire place is stone construction, this one, stone construction that then got plastered over top of to make smooth, nice walls, that was almost unheard of in a place like this, and it was incredibly expensive to do something like that. So there was, at first, people's radar went up. Why would they take this one house? And it's just another small house like all the others. It's no bigger than any other one. There's nothing special about it at all. Why was this changed? And so they did some further research and continued to dig. They found engravings and etchings on the walls that mentioned Jesus and Peter specifically. And then in addition to that, the housewares, if you will, the cupboards, if you will, inside the house, the artifacts that they found inside this house were dramatically different than every other house that they found there in the area of Capernaum, where the other houses would have items such as bowls and cups or whatever it was that you would use in a normal household goods. This particular house was filled with large storage jars and large lamps. And this is what they've discovered and determined over time. And this all happened, they can tell, this was all done about the time that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven around that same time. What they believe happened was because people knew this was the house and knew this was the house that he went to that they instantly went in, remodeled it and turned it into the first church in Capernaum. So this is where they would have had the jars that stored food, that stored communion wines, that stored any of those sorts of things and it became a gathering and they poured even their offering money into it to plaster the walls and to do all of these things. And so we are almost absolutely certain. I have another picture you want to show? There's another picture there. Now you wonder, now what's with the steel beams? This is what's, this will break some people's bubble when you go to Israel for the first time. It did mine to some degree, but I was warned about it in advance. Those steel beams right there are a church. They built a Catholic church suspended on giant steel beams right on top of Peter's house. It's literally like two feet from the top of it. And what's absurd is the way that they discovered this was Peter's house. Is that during the uh, the rebuilds as the city grew, someone built a church on top of it originally. When they excavated the old ruins, they found Peter's house. And so, what did they do? Turned right around and built another church on top of it anyway. It's just the weirdest thing. Show the next picture. That's the church. So here you can see all these little houses there in the village of Capernaum, and then there's this giant Catholic church with glass floors so that you can see down into Peter's house. It's annoying. It's like, come on, you can't go anywhere in Israel without like tripping over a church. They just put them all over the place. It's like the one area where I'm like, I'm not always in favor of church planting. I mean, like you can plant a church in Capernaum, just don't put it on Peter's house, please. Like across the street would be fine, right? Right? That's what they did. Anyway, so this is the city of Capernaum. This is where we're going to end on today. And I want to be able to share those things with you from time to time as we see, because I don't know, for me, having been there, it adds so much life and realism. It just helps us understand and picture what we're talking about. So you've got your map. You can see the the, the path that we're going to take. You can see where we're going to end up. I didn't want to do it, though, as we go through the particular story tonight, because we have some difficult words tonight we all big boys and girls in here tonight? Can I get an amen? amen. So we can take a hard thing from time to time, amen? amen. I hope so. so this, is a, this is a tough word, but it's, a, it's such a good word when we see what's going on in this text. And what I don't want to do as we're going through it, because we're going to cover a big chunk. Um, I'm going to point out some things as we go along, some different interesting things that might jog some memory and might raise some questions. That's fine if you have questions about that. Again, text them in. I would love to do this. We'll see how this works tonight. Um, uh, Pertinent questions, by the way. Can I say that? Pertinent questions um, is what we're talking about. But I want to stay big picture here. I want to stay big picture on what we're seeing because some people, I believe, have mistakenly throughout uh, history have, have tried to take several of these little events that take place in this particular chunk of scripture we're looking at and tried to separate them out. What does this one mean? And what does this one mean? And what does this one mean? And, and I think there's something much bigger that's happening in the way that it's projected. So that's what we're going to try to do. Everybody with me? Amen? So we're going to start in verse uh, 14. It says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, ran up to him and greeted him. So again, the apostles, well, Jesus and three apostles were on top of Mount Hermon, the transfiguration, the glory of Jesus Christ revealed. They witnessed it. Peter opened his mouth. The whole thing gets shut down. He ruined it again, right? And let me say this too. Chapter 9 is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. There's some of the funniest stuff in this chapter that you're just like, yeah, there's no way anyone just made this up because they wouldn't do this. I mean, remember, Mark, the book of Mark, we believe was commissioned by Peter. So it's as if Peter has someone dictating for him, if you will, his account of the gospel story. And so if a guy was just making some of these things up, why would he say the glory of God was coming down? There was all this amazing moment. There's Moses and there's Elijah. And I went, it's good that we're here. And then God shuts the whole thing down. And it even says that he said this because they were afraid and they didn't know what to say. I mean, that's just, you just wouldn't make that up. And and it so sums the whole thing up, right? Standing there watching everything happen, uh, 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 and like Peter, I'm afraid, I don't know what to say, so I'll say something, and ruins the whole thing, right? So that's what happens. So they're making their way back down. Now, meanwhile, the other disciples have been left to play on their own. So what's been going on while they're there? Well, the first two verses we're looking at today, verses 14 and 15, show that there is chaos going on when he gets back. This is like the parent that lets their child stay at home by themselves for the first time and comes back and immediately regrets the decision. So Jesus is coming down the hill, and he sees this scene playing out, and the words that are used here in the original language imply chaos. It's almost as if there's a riot. There's confusion. There's all of these people, and there's this big argument. There's a great crowd, and then there's the disciples yelling back and forth with the Pharisees, the scribes. And now the the people see Jesus coming and now they're running up to Jesus and there's just this big mess going on. In verse 16, he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered them. And I think it was someone from the crowd because I think the disciples were just like, <whistles> I don't know, you answer him, man. But someone from the crowd's like, I'll tell you what they were arguing about. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Man, put yourself in the place of this father. You've watched your son since birth go through horrific seizures. We see, we know from Mark's writing, and Mark writes about this more than any of the other gospels, about the reality of spiritual warfare. And some people try to translate this too far. When I I was in Mexico, um, we were taking care of orphans when I lived there in Mexico for a little while that were, some of them had seizures regularly. And we had people show up at the mission before that knew what we were doing. Christian people who I believe had good intentions, but they would come to knock on the door and say, we're here to cast the demons out of the sick kids that are here. I think it's a big, giant mistake to transfer spiritual warfare into every medical condition that ever comes, comes your way. Unless, I would agree with it in this case, to understand that every medical difficulty and condition is a result of the fact that sin has entered into the world. It absolutely is. But it doesn't mean that your child has epilepsy because you sinned or because a demon has possessed them. But in this particular case, this is what's being talked about. This is a specific spiritual demonic issue that's going on. And this guy has watched his child falling around on the floor, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth, and much, much more. And he says, the issue is is that they're having this big argument, the scribes and your disciples, because this is what's been going on with my son. And I've heard that your disciples can do this. I've heard that you've commissioned your disciples before. They've gone and they've cast out demons and they've healed the sick, but, but not this time. And so verse 19, And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. People want to argue a lot about what faithless generation he's talking to. Is he speaking to the scribes because they're being belligerent as usual? Um, others would say he's speaking to the disciples, though people would counter that by saying G- uh, he, Jesus uses the phrase generation several times in Mark, and it's never to refer to the disciples. Um, some people would say, well, he's just referring to people as a whole. And another book I read today said, who, who, we have no idea. And I, I, I lean that way, just so you know. We have no idea. He's speaking to us. That's a good way to answer that. He's speaking to us. And he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And then Jesus asked the father. Look at how Jesus does. So personal, so tender the way he interacts with people. He's given this guy a chance to tell his story. Like, tell me what's going on. What's going on with your heart? What is this that's been troubling you? How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, I like that. If you can do anything, (laughs) if I can do anything, Jesus kind of responds, I like to think maybe with a little smirk, maybe a little glimmer in his eye, knowing what he's about to do, to a dad who is desperate. He says, All things are possible for the one who believes. The limiting factor in what's about to happen here is not Jesus' ability, it's this man's faith, his ability to believe. That's the limiting factor here. He says, And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's not too many verses in the Bible that I'm more thankful are there than this one. You ever been in that situation? And you've said, I believe, but you know in your heart that there's a struggle? So, maybe he's saying, if you believe Jesus can heal him, and you're thinking, I believe, but I've been to every doctor. I've tried every medicine. We've gone to every website. We've looked at every possible thing. So, I'm saying I believe, but if I'm really honest deep down, I think this is not going to happen, but I will try anything. Had a woman come to me just Sunday after church. She's been battling cancer her whole life, thinks this is probably the one that will end her. Married to an atheist, not a believer came to us and said, I'll try anything. I think that's the condition that this man was in. I believe. Help my unbelief. This man was blatantly aware of his own weakness. And so when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Lest we ever think that somehow Satan and the demonic powers are on some parallel plane to Jesus and his powers. It's just a great reminder that it's just not the case. I mean, remember the last time that we saw Jesus with the guy in, in the Gadarenes, the demoniac, when the demons saw him, they were like, Oh, no, wait, hold on. Are you, I didn't think it was today. But are you destroying me today? Because I, I swear I thought we had some more time and there's some pigs over there, and we'll be content with that. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's not like, are we going to fight today? It's we're going down today. So he rebukes this demon. He's so powerful. Satan has no shot. This says, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. I can't camp on this. I can't tonight. I got to move on though. I'd love to, but how many times have we talked about the fact that sometimes putting your faith in Jesus doesn't mean that the very next thing that happens is always going to make everything better. And imagine, imagine this guy. I just put my faith in you that you're going to do this. And Jesus says, come out. And now what's the first thought that's going to cross his mind? He was possessed. Now he's dead. So many times that we do what Christ has asked us to do. We choose to put our faith in Him and we expect that we're going to be instantly rewarded in that. And in God's economy, it doesn't always work out that way. But here's the truth of it the end result is always for our good. Always for our good. Amen? Are you with me on that? Always for our good. Well, it was shorter rather than later for this particular one. And it says, verse 27 But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, verse 28, and this is where we get into the meat of this particular text, okay? And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could, not, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer. They didn't even pray. They didn't even pray. So now think about this. They've done this before. Jesus has commissioned them to go out and cast out demons and heal the sick and do all these things in his name. And they did it. And they were successful. They come back. Remember? Jesus, we can't believe the demons were subject to us, all these things. And remember Jesus told them, don't rejoice in the fact that demons obey when you do these things. Rejoice in what? That your name is written in heaven. That you're saved. Don't make your pride and your identity all these victories and things that you're able to do. You rejoice in the fact that grace has come upon you and you have been saved. That's where our identity is in. That's what we rejoice in. The gospel, not our works. And so, Jesus goes away just for a couple of days and he leaves these guys at home. And, And so quickly, everything changes. It goes to, look what you can, or goes from, look what you can do through us to, why couldn't we do this? That's what they say. Why, why couldn't we do this? And he says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And then other translations, depending on which one you're using, add fasting to that as well. So what's the, what's the point on that? Well, here's the thing. Jesus is on the mountain. They're away from him. And in their arrogance... They believed that they now had some sort of ability. They now have matured. They have reached this plateau of greatness or authority or whatever it is so that they're now doing this thing. They may even be saying in Jesus' name, but they're not doing anything in Jesus' name. They're actually acting out in their name, and they're failing at it big time. They're failing at it big time. Now, there is a major contrast that's laid out in this particular story on purpose that's going to set the tone for the rest of these verses we're looking at. On one hand, you have a group of disciples saying, why couldn't we do it? We tried. We did everything we knew to do. We took matters into our own hands. Arrogant enough to say, I'm going to take on the ministry of Jesus Christ without even consulting or praying and doing anything. Even Jesus himself would pray. But these guys don't. And they take matters into their own hands and they're like, I don't understand why we couldn't do it. We did everything we thought. And then on the other hand, you have a guy who is so far from self-help. He is absolutely desperate if you believe. I, I believe. No, I don't. Help me with my unbelief. He's not even confident in the fact that he believes that this can actually Happen. He is completely, without any effort or any self-reliance or any self-determination at all, he is 100% dependent on Jesus to do everything. He's depending on Jesus to heal his child, and he's depending on Jesus to give him the faith that's necessary that the child might be healed. He brings nothing to the table. Nothing but desperation and need. And look what Jesus does through him. His son is healed. This man is a model, an example for us. And so when Jesus says, this kind can only be cast out by prayer, think about this. There's two ways that we as believers today can really easily take stock in our lives to see where our faith is and what our dependence is. One, the Bible says, is our money. What we do with our money, opening up our checkbooks, seeing what we do, will tell us a lot about our actual faith and what we're putting our money in. And that's why the scriptures talk about It's difficult for a rich man to go into heaven because when you have a lot of money, the way this world is laid out, I mean, you can tend to get things done. You can go to a lot of doctors. You can pay for a lot of experimental medicine. You can do a whole lot of things when you have money. And it takes a lot to get those of that sort of resources to the end of themselves in the same way that this man was. And so the Bible talks to us about the way we handle money. That's why it says that we give first to God, because it's a declaration right out the beginning that our faith is in Him, our trust is in Him. This isn't a, a message about trying to get you guys to give more. God is fabulously wealthy, and this is His church. This is about us and where we put our faith in and what we determine. One of the ways is your money. How you spend your money tends to determine who your God is and where your strength lies. The other one is actually prayer. Prayer is a really good litmus test to see, are we actually depending on God? Or are we, as I am so prone to do, just taking care of things on our own? And that happens to me so much more, and I'm embarrassed and, and humbled to say so, so much more than it should it is the grace of God that our church is doing so well because there have been so many times, so many times that I have just rushed straight to the decision, come in on a Wednesday morning and I, I don't have time for devotions. The phone started ringing and the emails started coming in and the next thing you know, the day's over. I didn't even intend to not do that and I've gone through the entire day making decisions that, with regards to how to lead his church without ever checking into the actual master shepherd, the one I work under, if you will. Happens all the time. And I see the nods. I'm not alone, am I? See, the thing about prayer is that prayer, uh, there was a lot of times in my life, and we can even treat it in, in situations like this where prayer is that thing that we use to go to God and try to convince him to do that thing that we need him to do. We can look at it that way a lot. But I love the analogy that Kent Hughes used one time. He said, no, prayer doesn't quite work like that. Prayer's like you're in a boat floating on a lake. It's not a fishing story. Don't worry. You're in a boat floating on a lake, and you take an anchor, and you throw it onto the bank, and then you grab that anchor rope, and you start to pull. Now, are you pulling the bank towards you, or are you pulling yourself towards the bank? Everybody thinks you're pulling the bank towards you? Raise your hand. Sam, everybody who thinks that you're pulling the bank towards you, raise your hand. The rest of you just don't know. All right, let's start this over. You're in a boat <laughs> on the water. <laughs> so this is, this is what I mean by this. Prayer is way less about us going to God and convincing God to do the things we want. Prayer is a time when as we're seeking Him and spending time with Him and conversing with Him, He changes our heart in line with His will. It, 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 it's pulling us to him. It's not pulling him to us. That's what prayer is about. And, that, and that's where dependence comes in. It's this idea that when I go to the Lord in prayer, I'm praying, this is what I want, because he tells us to do that, does he not? Doesn't he say he's a good father and just like a child coming to a father that we are to ask, but there's something about that person who wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ that's a goal of our study on Wednesday nights, walking with Jesus and seeking him that he is molding you into his image. He is changing your heart to be more like Jesus's. He is changing you. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. We're gonna be at really, really soon. And it's the theme of our whole series. As we behold him, we become like him. We're not changing him. He is unchangeable. But he's changing us because we are desperately in need of change. So let me, let me encourage you on this. Odds are, if I said how many people are praying as much as they should, no one's hand goes up. So let's just assume that we already did that, right? Let's just get past the formality. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to take the time to get up in the morning. I... To, this morning even, I got up, I was talking to Jeremy about this today. I was like, I, I came in really early today and I don't, I don't normally like to do that on Wednesdays because it's a long day for me. But I just was like, I need to go in like early. Because if I show up at eight, the emails are already coming, the phone's already ringing, the text messages are coming in, the stuff's there to do. But if I come in at 6.30, it doesn't. Now no one get up early and text me, okay? That's my time. <laughs> <laughs> but I need that. And I, and I recognize that my heart tends to lean from him more when I'm, when I'm neglecting that. And I become self-reliant. I end up coming in and just taking care of things on my own energy. I know how to do this. I've been doing this for five whole years. For those of you in the back, that was a sarcastic eye roll that I just did. I was not serious about that. But here's what I think. John 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing, Right? But then Jesus tells the desperate man, all things are possible for you who believe. And I believe there is a tension between that. I mean, unless you just have that spiritual gift where, I mean, and there are, there are people with calluses on their knees because prayer is one of those things that just works for them. That is not me. That is a discipline that I have to forge and cut time out for because my heart, my prideful heart is I'll take care of this. I can do this. I can handle these things. So that's a discipline for me. And maybe many of you are like that. I hope so. I hope I'm not the only one in that, but it may be. But I believe that this is a continual wrestling match that all of us go through from one degree or another. And it's the the reason is, is that God designs us to lean and depend on him, but we are born with sinful, independent, rebellious natures that want to wander away from God. It's what happened in Genesis chapter 3, and it's been happening ever since. And so there's always going to be a wrestling match. I don't know that anyone goes through seasons where they're continually just constantly just lights out prayer depending on God in every single thing in their life. I don't think that happens. I think that there's a sinful nature in us that we are wrestling with that we need to be aware of so that we can tell when our heart is drawn away from God, that we can take stock in our lives to say, man, I am not depending on him, and I guarantee you that's going to show up in prayer before it shows up in anything else. And you might fake it for a really long time. You know, I am the vine, you are the branches. I, I wrote a whole blog article about this last year. It's probably the last blog article I actually wrote. But it's about a tree branch that I'd cut off when pruning some trees, and it bloomed. Like The branch is dead, laying on the ground, and it's blooming. There's buds coming up. But the end of that thing is death. Oh, it might have a little residual water still working through the veins, but in the end, it's going to die. And that's when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do Nothing. And that's it, the same for the best of us. I mean, these are the apostles. It's hard to call them the best of us in this particular chapter. But this is these are the founders of the early church. It's the ones Jesus chose. And, and let's see how it plays out from them for them. Verse 30. So they went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. I love that. So Jesus again starts teaching about the fact that the crucifixion's coming, the cross is on the way, suffering's coming. They didn't understand it again, but this time they were afraid to ask. Why? Well, two reasons. Number one, Mark chapter 8. Because the last time that Jesus talked about this, Peter pulled him aside and said, Jesus, you really don't mean that stuff. And he got rebuked. Get thee behind me, Satan. Your eyes are on your kingdom, not God's kingdom. That was the answer, right? And no one wants that again. They're like, look, that's gonna be written about for a long time, and I don't wanna be in that story. So, so they don't ask for that. But, but the other reason is actually still in the same thing this idea of looking out for your own kingdom versus looking out for my kingdom. Because the truth of the matter is this every time in the book of Mark, you can notice this every time in the book of Mark, when Jesus teaches his disciples about suffering, it is instantly met with them taking opportunity to declare their own desire for their own personal gain and empire. Every single time. I'm going to the cross, I'm going to suffer. Who's the greatest? Every time in the book of Mark, because this is the tension, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man. And it's a real tension. And again, we can look down on the disciples if you want to, but the right way to look at them is as if you're holding a mirror right in front of your own face, because this is us every day. How many days have you come out of a Sunday service going, "Man, I'm going to do that forever now? And it lasted till Monday because you had work to do. You have to pay your bills. You have to deal with your house. You have your own stuff you got to worry about. And there's just this tension that happens between them all the time. But maybe, we're, maybe I'm just reading too much into that. Maybe that's not the case here. Verse 33, so they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, the one you just saw, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. What were you guys talking about? Oh, nothing. Now you tell them. Tell, Peter will tell him. He tells him everything. Like, I mean, just, just what were you guys talking about? Like, he doesn't know, right? Like, he didn't hear him. So, what were you guys talking about? Mm, nothing. Oh, I'm so glad this stuff's in the Bible because you know, you know, I'm so. What I so love about this is here's this tension, here's this pull, and he doesn't kick him to the curb. He doesn't say, "All right, I'm, I'm done." You all flunk out, auditions tomorrow, we're starting over, but that's it. I'm done with you guys. Instead, he pulls the guys together and he humbly continues to teach. He doesn't expect them to have it all together right now. He's using it as opportunities to grow them. Look what he says, verse 35. So he sat down and he called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking them in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who se- see- excuse me, sent me. So here's what he does. He's like, all right, we've been through this a million times. Okay, <laughs> gather around, gather around. Peter, I want you right in the front, right here, I can see you. Everybody gather around. Okay, here's how it works. If you want to be first, you're going to be last. Right. Good job. He's telling, and then he's like, I'm not going to leave this to chance this time. I need to get an analogy. I need to get a picture. Maybe they're visual learners. Let's work on this. So he grabs a kid, and he sets a kid up in the front. Why would he do that? Well, because in that culture right there, no rabbi wastes his time teaching kids. Nobody did that. Well, you had schools for children, but no master, rabbi, no teacher in synagogues. Kids were viewed as like, oh, that's in the future, your day's coming, but right now, uh, just get away, kid, you bother me. It's kind of the way that it was. In fact, the whole process of Jewish culture was built on kids growing and learning and proving that they had what it takes so that they could sit under a rabbi. So kids had to memorize the entire Old Testament. They had to apply. They got quizzed by rabbis. They went through this entire process to prove that this rabbi thought they were smart enough to actually be one of his disciples. And so no kid would be in that circle. And Jesus takes a child, the least of these, the one that would be completely ignored. And he sets them right up in the middle and he says, all right. Whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. I mean, Christ spins that entire culture around on its head, does he not? He says in Matthew 24, 25, if you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Does he not? And he's talking about the rejects, the homeless, the poor, the people, know the beggars. That's who he's talking about. No religious leader would ever call them worthy of their attention at that time. Matthew 19, 14, he says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, he says, this whole kingdom that everyone's chasing hinges upon something to do with these little children. I mean, he's putting incredible attention, incredible importance on these little guys. James 1:27. I remember this when I mentioned being in Mexico. This was written right above the cocina where we would go and eat every single day. James 1, 27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, that you visit the orphan and the widow in their time of trouble and you keep yourself unspotted before the world. Jeff translation, that's what it says. So here he even says that pure religion, the purest, most acceptable form, if you're looking to serve in such a way that the aroma of that service smells sweet to God, it doesn't get any purer than going to these children that have no fathers, go into these widows that have no husbands, go into these people that would be considered the least of these. And then what continues, the very next chapter, if you will, in James, that's the last verse of chapter 1. He goes right on to say, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes to the assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, and you say, Here, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? He says, you guys are fighting so hard to make a name for yourselves, and has not God come to choose those who have abandoned themselves, who have come to an end of themselves? I mean, go back to the original story. Who is the one more representative of the follower, the disciple, if you will, of Jesus Christ? The guys who said, how come we couldn't do it? We didn't pray, Thought didn't think we needed to. Or, or the one who said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Who put all of his hope in Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't it that guy? So what's our takeaway from all of this? We... Our servants of all. First of all is this, rather than fighting to be first, obviously our role as disciples, and again, on Wednesday nights, if you're new here with us, on Wednesday nights we teach this from the standpoint of you have gathered together here because your desire in your heart is to learn what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus, that you want to be a disciple and you want to be a better and better or a closer and closer representation of Jesus Christ. It's the the whole Mark study. As we behold him, we become like him, based off 2 Corinthians 3.18. So, if that's your heart, that's why you're here, then rather than fighting to be first, our role as disciples, we have to understand. It's not a pyramid model where we're climbing to the top. It's inverted, if you will, where we're scrambling to the bottom. that's That's what that means. This idea that we are the servant of all. But even better, that no one, no one is beneath the reach of the grace of God. No one. Not the least of these. Not the kid who has no, doesn't seem like he has anything to play right now. I mean, it brings nothing to the table. It's just a kid. Get out of here. We're doing some serious stuff. And Jesus says, nope, this is the example. Pops him right there. disciples. I probably shouldn't have went, when we're talking about little kids. But the disciple is the one who is willing even to serve these, the least of these So we're all servants of all, humble. The last shall be first. It's not about us. It's about humility, and it's all for Jesus, not for us, right? Got it? All the guys sitting around, the little kids in the mirror. Yeah, we got it. We got it this time, boss. We got it, Jesus. We're in. Awesome. All right, let's go. Verse 38. So John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Oh, my goodness. How awesome is that? Okay, now think about this for just a second. Was John one of the disciples that was failing at casting out demons? No. Where was John? He's on Mount Hermon. So he's thinking he's special. He's the guy who was on the team with everybody else before, succeeding in casting out demons. He thinks he's got it. He's probably standing there thinking, this doesn't apply to me. He's calling out these other guys. I'm one of the special ones. He took me on the mountain. He didn't take everybody else. And what does he say? Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but listen to why. We tried to stop him because he was not following who? Us. Don't you think it's a bit presumptuous to think that the disciples are worthy of having a following at this particular point? Can we all agree on that? They're not quite ready. We need to reset the timer on the oven and let them cook a little bit longer. Right? A little soft at this point. And this is what he says. They weren't following us, so we told them to stop. Oh, man, because he wasn't following us. And this happens all the time. Again, we're not looking down on them. We're looking in a mirror. So how many times do we, remember this picture Sam showed a couple of weeks ago? We figured it all out. We have the proper biblical interpretation, no one else. And we'll separate from that congregation over there because they don't believe the way that we do. They don't believe in a rapture over there. What fools. Well, we will separate from them. Or or they don't believe in uh, this. They're Arminian. They're Calvinist. They're this. They're that. To people that are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not talking about non-negotiables here, right? We're not talking about those that are preaching a false gospel to the world. We're not talking about wolves, okay? We're talking about brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God doing Christ's work in the name of Jesus. And we're going... No, he's not following us. He's not following our way. He doesn't have it figured out the way we did, so we'll just separate from them, and we'll do the exact same thing that John does, and it happens all the time. And it happens to me all the time. It happened to me this week. I'm ashamed to tell you. I went to a memorial service this week that another pastor was leading, and I didn't have to do the service. I wasn't, it was for a congregant that goes here. It was one of their family members passed away. And I went to support the family. But I didn't actually do the service. Someone else did. And I was sitting there in the audience. And this pastor got up there from a small Lutheran church. And in my mind and in my heart, I picked him apart for about 10, 15 minutes before God smacked me across the face. Sitting right there and said, what are you doing? Like you're sitting here watching this guy like he hasn't even said Jesus yet. He hasn't done this yet. What is he doing? Why would he say that? All these sorts of things. That guy's a retired pastor. He's been doing it for 50 years. You've been doing it for like a second and a half. And you figured it out. We're lucky to have you on the team, Jeff. I'm not done either. Now now here's here's where I can take some joy. Is that I am in a place right now where God's getting my attention about some of those things a whole lot sooner than he used to. Because there would have been a time... So, I'm thankful that I was at a place where, at a certain point, God grabbed my heart, even as I'm still sitting there, and I was able to just start repenting. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What do I know? This guy's been doing this for 50 years. Probably dreamed of his church ever getting to the size that Heritage has got. And I've been just tripping over myself every step of the way, and somehow this happens, and now I'm going to take credit for it and pick this guy apart like I know what I'm doing, and he does. That's foolish. That is absolutely foolish. So I had to repent from that. And I'll have to repent from things like that in the future. I'm telling you right now, man, your pastor is a prideful man. Your pastor is a man who is very aware of the weaknesses that he has. But I'm trying, as God is my witness, I'm trying to start putting more and more of that on his plate. Say, I'm just, I'm going to depend on you, Jesus. This is on you. This is not about me. Is my my plans, my wisdom, my anything? Everything that has happened here is because of you, and I am so thankful, and I'm so grateful, and I'm trying, and I have to say that over and over and over. Less of me, more of you. Less of me, more of you. Because if I don't, I'll be just like the disciples. I'll go to the communion table and I'll remember what Jesus did for me, and then I'll walk out of here after doing a good sermon, thinking somehow I earned it. Been there. Did a good deed for somebody. I earned it. I bet Jesus is proud of me right now. Rejoice not that the demons answer to your name. Rejoice not that you can cast out sick. Rejoice not in any of those things. We rejoice in one thing, that Jesus Christ has poured his grace out on us. That's it. There is nothing else. Ephesians makes it clear, lest anyone should boast. So Jesus tells him, Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is against us is, excuse me, for the one who is not against us is for us. Look how patient he still is. It's not like, so Jesus, you know, struck them down with lightning and put an ad out on Craigslist and got new apostles. That's what I would have did. Verse 41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will no wise lose his reward. Conclusion. We are horribly self-obsessed people, every last one of us. That's why the Bible says that we're to treat others as we would want to be treated because we would treat ourselves pretty good, wouldn't we? That's why he says that. But Jesus praises in verse 41, he says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He says, the disciple of Jesus is the waiter, not the one sitting in the restaurant complaining because the water's not cold enough or didn't have enough ice or the glass didn't get filled. We are servants of Jesus Christ who depend on Jesus Christ in every area of our life. That's what a disciple means. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, it is a renunciation daily, daily, hourly of self and it is a decision to actively pursue him i'll follow him i'll do like him I, I had a. we're not gonna have time for it but in john chapter 13 what does he say he he takes on the position of what the servant and he washes their feet like the worst of the servants the lowest of the low and then he turns around to them and what does he say do you do you understand what i just did i just gave you a pattern And the servant is not greater than his what? Master. And here's how I know, and I said something about it being a hard word or a heavy word. Hopefully it's not come off that way, but, but here's what I know. Our flesh hates this, and I know that because every time I preach this, we lose people. Every time I preach this message, we lose people. And I've met with people, I've talked with people who have literally said to me, I want to go to a place where the message makes me feel good about myself and I don't have to do anything. I've literally been spoke those words to me before. But dare we not shake our heads at them as well? Because isn't that what our really isn't that really what our heart wants? Isn't that really what our sinful heart wants? Just make me feel good about me and don't ask me to do anything outside my comfort zone. Don't ask me to wash feet, man. Oof. Feet? Come on. Knees maybe? feet but this is who we are and and jesus says happy are you if you do these things it is a joy to serve jesus it is a privilege to be a servant in the kingdom of god and it is the only place that you're going to find happiness it's the only place If you keep chasing your own thing if you keep chasing stuff you will always be let down But happy is the one who renounces self, puts his dependence on Jesus, and follows him. And you know, just to close out, you know, I told you there were some etchings, remember, in Peter's house that they found in the plaster? You know what one of them says? Lord Jesus Christ, help thy servant. That says it all. Lord Jesus Christ, help thy servant. Did we get any questions at all? We did? okay two really quickly we'll put them up what do we got oh that's a joke i told you not to put that one we all know the answer to it we just don't like the answer what's the next one (laughs) what actions do you suggest as we believers should take in regards to someone who is we suspect is demon possessed prayer that's what i would say first pray i mean it Okay, if the heads start spinning around and they levitate off the bed, you could probably be pretty sure that they're demon-possessed, right? But in most cases, that's going to be difficult to say. I mean, and even the topic of demon possession is so broad. I mean, I think you could attribute even demonic entities with regards to drug abuse. And you talk to people that have been involved in hardcore drug abuse, and you'll find there is some creepy stuff that goes down um, that, that can't always be attributed to just a psychedelic drug or something. Um, but but, demon possession, I know we, we take that a little farther, but there's oppression as well. There are people that are being oppressed by demons because they're caught up in materialism or sex or whatever. And so the first thing I would do is I would say that you pray, right? Pray. Um, seek counsel. Probably don't want to start flinging holy water on them just on a whim. You know what I mean, those things? I would say that you pray, you seek God's counsel, you try to talk with them about Jesus, and maybe you... Uh, get a pastor that actually knows something about demon possession, um, not named Jeff Hensley most likely. But but no, I, I would say you bring the elders in and you pray and you lay hands on them and you trust because we don't exercise demons, right? You guys know that, right? Jesus does that. Jesus does that. So um, we should check with him first is what I would say. That's probably not quite as specific as you wanted. Like step one, get garlic. <laughs> <laughs> step two, silver bullet, you know, I I would say we pray. That's what he chastised these guys for doing, right? Why couldn't we do it? You didn't pray. You tried to do it on your own. Is that all? No, there's one more. As Christians, we're called to carry our crosses and rejoice in suffering. We're also told to have faith to believe Christ can do all things. How do we discern between these two commands? In other words, how do we embrace suffering and pursue healing simultaneously? Uh, okay, here's what I would say. Um, are you trusting that if the healing doesn't come, then that, that's either a sign that you did something wrong or that God disapproves of you? Um, you, you there's a difference between, okay, I'm going to trust that God heals. But remember, even in our prayer, when we're praying for healing, remember the analogy. We're not pulling the mountain to us. We're pulling ourselves to the mountain. Understand? So the idea being, do we pray for people to be healed? Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely pray absolutely for people to be healed but, but more than anything we're praying that God's will would be done and that their eternal good would be would be accomplished because you, you can be healed from cancer and still go to hell and what does that profit you? right? Um, or, or you can be, be, you, you could succumb if you will. you could die from cancer and your death could be that which God uses to bring family members in your family to heaven. And I assure you when you get to heaven you'll be fine with that. Like The moment you cross over, you'll be like, oh, this is way much better than what I was praying for. <laughs> you really will. Six more months in the hospital or riding tigers to work, I'll take that, please. <laughs> right? So, so there's a difference between those who say, it's my faith that heals, or it's I'm putting faith in Jesus that he will do what is best for me. But is the healing possible? All things are possible to those who believe, but does that mean that God's going to necessarily grant that? Well, I can tell you this much. He will withhold no good thing from those who love him. That's what the scriptures do say. So if that healing you're praying for is withheld, it means there was something better on the other end that God had in mind. And no matter what, he promises to heal, doesn't he? And then what he says? I come in Isaiah 62. I came so that captives would be set free. When you get to heaven, do you have cancer? No, oh, so he healed you. There you go. Win-win. but we pray for healing you know we pray for healing and God wants to hear our hearts I mean he says to this guy tell me your story what's going on what are you struggling with God cares about those things and so even if he doesn't grant instantly that thing that we're praying for he does promise to give a peace that passes understanding does that make sense I hope that's not circular reasoning I know it can come off that way but it's, it's just not sometimes you just have to walk with Jesus long enough to see those things play out too and that's just the reality of it as well is that it? One more? we got to go. One more? How do we keep ourselves humble before God, and can we do it, or is it something that only God can do? <laughs> that's one of those ones you don't want to pray for. You know what I mean? <laughs> God, make me humble. No, I mean, make me humble in a way that's not embarrassing or humiliating or... <sighs> um, how can we be, keep ourselves humble? I, I think you just go back to the gospel. I think when we understand, when we spend time with Jesus and we understand who we are and what we've been saved from, when we go to the communion table and we're reminded that it's not because of us, man, it, someone asked me one time, I, I was talking to a, a well-known pastor one time and, and, uh, that I had known for years and he was asking me, so what's different about now you're the senior pastor of a church, what surprises you? And my instant answer totally puzzled him and I don't understand why and it made me feel really self-conscious until I talked to other guys and now I feel better about myself. But I told him, I said, what surprises me? That I'm not better than I am. Because when I was younger, even when I felt the first call into ministry at the very beginning, I thought, and by the time I get there, all these different things I wrestle with in my life will be dealt with and I'll have it figured out. Because don't the pastors, they look that way. And I thought, that'll be me. I won't have those sorts of issues anymore and it'll be fine. Um, And what I've found is that the closer I get to Jesus and the more I learn about Jesus, the more I'm aware of my own sinfulness. And that's humbling. And so I would say the person who, if if you want to be humble and you want to keep yourself humble, then keep yourself at the feet of Jesus. Because when you see Jesus, you can't get prideful. The gospel excludes boasting. Amen? Amen. Amen. Was that cool? You guys like the Q&A thing? Can we do that? I'm going to have to preach shorter, aren't I? But I want to do that some more. So we might, we'll keep tweaking on that, but let's do that some more. But let's stand and pray, can we? Just so you know, I don't know is a perfectly valid answer for me on these. Just letting you know in advance. God, will you make us humble? Help us to be humble? We pray that nervously. But in reality, Lord, we know we want to be more like you. And so, God, will you continue to just reveal yourself to us? Will you continue to grow us, Lord? in your grace and in your mercy. God, in areas where we are weak, in areas where we do fail, and it will happen, God, will you grant us repentance even quickly? I thank you, Lord, that you have grown us closer and closer to you, and I pray, God, you would continue to do so. I pray, God, you would forgive us of our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. I pray, God, that you would never allow Heritage to get away with a sense of entitlement or pride. But God, may we just continue to keep our eyes on you and may you get glory for everything that happens because apart from you, we can do nothing. It is all about you. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you Sunday morning.